I'm Teresa Wezar, your host of One in 10. Thanks for joining me today as I talk to Nelson Bunn, the Executive Director of the National District Attorneys Association about the future of prosecution. Unsurprisingly, this is a moment of system transformation in the criminal justice system. You can't read the newspaper or listen to the radio or even a podcast without finding that we're in a significant moment in which there's some change already needed that's happened within the criminal justice system. We're in the middle of some that's occurring right now, and there's so far yet to go. And speaking with Nelson, he talked about the unique role of prosecutors and helping lead that change. The moment that we're in, the sort of zeitgeist and the feeling that we have, the anxiety that exists in the community about the relationship with law enforcement and the relationship to the criminal justice system overall, the importance of really centering victims in the work and not losing that focus as we talk about how we may go about the reform that's needed. And I was so pleased that he spent some time talking not only about trust and law enforcement and how important that might be, but critically, the special role of accountability in that trust. The fact that it has to be earned over and over again by being accountable to the community. How might the criminal justice system look different moving forward? What is that wonderful future state that we can envision that will be so much better and so much more restorative than the one we're in right now? What's really the role of the community and community leaders, including children's advocacy centers and child abuse professionals in nudging, even pushing and catalyzing the needed change? And how do prosecutors help lead this system transformation? So Nelson, criminal justice reform has been a hot topic for a while, and it's becoming even more of a key one around the country. And that's really true, whether you're talking about mass incarceration or discussions around mandatory minimums or police reform or other areas. And I'm just wondering, how are your own members who are all prosecutors, how are they thinking about the future of the criminal justice system? And how might that look different from where we are right now? Prosecutors are, as you mentioned and alluded to, sort of at the forefront in many ways of the criminal justice system and the reform that is happening across the country and being talked about across the country. Um, criminal justice reform writ large in a broad sense. There's so much that really is encompassed with that, but it really is taken on a new life of its own particularly after passage of the First Step Act, which from a federal system perspective, reduced mandatory minimums for certain drug offenses. There were also some other reforms, whether it be compassionate release or uh, certain loopholes that were sort of um, double whammies for individuals caught up in the system. And so while we supported that, and many prosecutors around the country support that, we continue to find ways in which we can improve the criminal justice system. The status quo for anything in life is not necessarily always a good approach. Prosecutors are constantly examining the ways in which they operate, whether it be internally or the way the system operates as part of that externally and what they can do in their particular role to improve the system and make sure that it's as fair, effective, and efficient as it possibly can be. And I think in many ways, prosecutors are taking on a more proactive 
and leadership role in this space. While at the same time, I always like to point out that, you know, prosecutors have been the implementers of reform for decades. I take diversion programs, for example. You'll probably laugh at this, but I had a reporter that called me a couple years ago and said, you know, Nelson, how are prosecutors reacting to this concept of diversion programs and this push for diversion programs? And I said, well, I think the premise of your question is wrong. Prosecutors for years have been finding ways to keep people out of the criminal justice system whenever possible while also protecting public safety. Now, at the same time, we have seen a lot of shifts in mentality of whether it be, for example, maybe treating prostitution, understanding that an individual is really a victim of human trafficking, for example, or that somebody has a mental health issue or a substance use issue and that they really need treatment or other services, transportation, housing, all of these things. And that, you know, jail is not really, or the broader criminal justice system is not really the best home for them. We also have a lot more focus on second chances. And, you know, at NDAA and with our members, we feel really strongly about that, that there is rehabilitation and there is recidivism reduction programming that works. It can be tailored to each individual. But we know that the vast majority of people come back to the communities that they were originally a part of after they have completed their sentences. And so if we don't have the right infrastructure in place and the right resources or capacity to help these individuals become reintegrated into society, then we're doing them a disservice and our broader society a disservice. And so for me, the biggest shift is a bigger leadership and proactive role by prosecutors in the criminal justice reform and improvement space to better their societies and also make sure we're helping people. Well, it seems to me that the lens through which we view things has also changed, right? Growing up in Texas, for example, if you had taken me back to my childhood, which was a while ago, Nelson, but if you took me back that far, you know, we had elected judges and they ran on, so not prosecutors, but talking about judges now, although our prosecutors were elected too, but they ran on these sort of tough, give the most a sort of onerous punishment kind of platforms. I mean, you'd see billboards and stickers and everything that kind of went that way. So it didn't matter if it was a judge or a prosecutor, but you saw this kind of language. And it feels like we have really moved, and maybe not enough, but have moved away from that. So when I think about this election cycle and prosecutors who are working to get reelected, I don't think you're seeing that type of um, language much anymore, you know, that sort of, you know, we're just mm-hmm. here to crack down on people and, and those kinds of things. What do you think really has shifted, or maybe you disagree with the premise, do you think the mindset has shifted enough in that way? And if you do think it has made a shift, what do you think has been driving that? Well, I do agree with you, Teresa, that there has been a shift. So it's, it's not just you. Um, there has been a shift in the broader mentality or the role of the prosecutor in the criminal justice system. You're right. For so long, there was just a um, sort of carte blanche, tough on crime. And there still, in many ways, exists this narrative of that the prosecutor is just there to lock people up and throw away the key. And there's so much more to the role of the prosecutor in the criminal justice system, a lot of which I just talked about. But when you, I want to pick up on a point you mentioned about sort of the terminology and the language, 
And the words and phrases that we use as a society are so important in this area too. I mentioned a substance use issue. It's no longer the addict. It's substance use disorder and those with mental health disorders and intellectual disabilities. And, you know, all these different words and phrases that we use in the criminal justice system certainly do play a role. Rehabilitation was not a word that was really thrown around a lot just several years ago in many circles. And so I do think that language is important. To your broader question and point about the shift in the mentality and the attitude, I do think that has occurred. And in terms of how or why that has occurred, it's a variety of reasons. Um, You mentioned science. And I do think if you're talking about maybe the adolescent brain, for example, we know that the adolescent brain is developing at a much later stage in life as opposed to younger in life. And because of that, we've seen a lot of states raise the age when it comes to juveniles being tried as adults. Um, So that's just one example of increased science. We also have seen the science of addiction be a much more focused on topic that has reached a wide variety of stakeholders and then they're informed their decision-making processes. In addition to science and research, the other thing that I think is very important in the context of prosecutors specifically is data. Um, I know that that can be part of science and research, but if you really want to break it down to data that a prosecutor may use for decision-making processes, data on you know how many people are in their diversion programs, prosecutors are not about conviction rates. Our current president, who is the elected Commonwealth attorney from Chesapeake, Virginia, we were on a call the other day and she said, I couldn't tell you my conviction rate because that's not what we're here to do necessarily. Like that's not the premise of a prosecutor. Yes, we want to seek justice for victims of crime and a conviction in one instance may be success, but diversionary programming may be success in another individual situation. So conviction doesn't define success, but that gets into data and metrics and the much broader use now by prosecutors, um, including some larger offices, again, getting to resources that have hired data analysts within their office just to handle that and create public dashboards with data for transparency, accountability. I gave a presentation with another colleague the other day to prosecutors across the state of Kansas on uh, community trust building and how language and how data and how the role of the prosecutor has shifted over time. And so I, I not only agree with your premise, but I do think it's that science, research, and data and technology, quite frankly, that has played a large part in the shifting landscape. You know, I think there's also something to say as well about advocacy from the community itself, right, that has also been demanding some change in perspective. And when I have been following elections around the country, including local officials, it's been interesting to see, you know, who's doing well and who's not. So taking in D.C., for example. If you look at our city council, there's an at-large position that had, I don't know, something like 22 people running for it. And you looked at their different uh, profiles, what they were saying about criminal justice. 
was a big part of the discussions, police reform, those kinds of things. And I think that it's also the community as a whole that's saying, maybe helping catalyze that or for prosecutors that are reform minded, helping them move their efforts forward because there's such an interest in the community from that. One of the things I wanted to ask you too about is that in many communities and despite efforts that prosecutors may have made in you know, these ongoing reforms, as you say, they've had to transform themselves over and over in many cases, but there's also a sense in many places of a breach of trust, not specific necessarily to prosecutors, but maybe just the idea of law enforcement as a whole, that there feels mm-hmm. like there's this kind of distrust between the community and those charged to protect and keep it safe. What all are you doing? I know many prosecutors have been involved, but what are you doing as an association? What are you doing as a profession to really help restore, build, enhance trust between prosecutors and the community? Trust building is a core tenet and foundation for any community, particularly between the constituents in that community and law enforcement writ large, whether that be your local police department or your local prosecutor's office. And having that trust, um, I do think that in many ways there has been a breach of trust. And even when maybe a local jurisdiction feels that they have done a good job of building that trust, I say all the time in any situation that whether you think you've done a good job or not, if there is a, um, a feeling or the perspective is that there isn't a good job being done, you've still got a problem, whether you think you've done a good job or not. From a prosecutor perspective or an NDA in a broader level perspective, having those discussions about transparency and accountability, um, that gets back to the data question a little bit. At our summer conference this year, we had a whole session on prosecutor transparency and accountability and community trust building. And it was our highest attended session, which I think speaks volumes to the need and desire by the field to really make sure they're doing everything they can to build that trust because any jurisdiction could have a George Floyd incident. And the killing of George Floyd was horrific. And while that case is still going on in many ways, it's symbolic of any jurisdiction could have an officer involved shooting. They could have a situation that they make national news. And if they have not been working to build that trust with their community, things can go down a hand pretty quickly. And I think more times than not, we hear about it in the officer-involved shooting context. But even in any other context, having that basic trust and perspective of I can pick up the phone and call this pastor at a church nearby or this um, advocate that is providing services to victims or whoever it may be, that they're able to do that in a way that is a partnership if that makes sense. And if they have an incident that comes up in their jurisdiction down the road and have been able to build trust, it's more likely that that is going to be a smoother process moving forward because there is that inherent accountability and trust and transparency that the prosecutor is meeting the needs of the community that he or she may serve. And I do think to your point about the advocacy community, That has been so critical in the broader criminal justice reform narrative. And, you know, I never thought that I would be watching an NFL game and see ads run for criminal justice reform in an NFL game. And I think that just speaks 
volumes to the advocacy community and all the work that they have done. I mean, we work very closely with Prison Fellowship, for example, on the Pell Grant restoration issue, which is something we've supported and the idea of rehabilitation and second chances. And they have done so much great work in that space. And we've been a proud uh, sort of partner alongside them to push some of those issues. And I think when all these stakeholders can come together and really advocate for what they see as the right path forward, that that speaks volumes to policymakers. Well, you know, I really appreciate the way that you're pairing accountability and trust, because I think sometimes there's been a sort of call to trust law enforcement, again, in the big sense of law enforcement, not any particular person or any particular role, but not necessarily also a discussion about holding oneself accountable, which is trust building. And so I just really Mm want to say how much I appreciate the way in which you're thinking and talking about that and know that your constituencies do, because I think that that is critical to helping folks feel that they're being heard, represented well, that issues are addressed when they need to be and not swept under the rug, all of those kinds of things. I want to turn for a minute to child abuse cases because Mm -hmm. the CEC experience, it seems to me, has something to say about how the community can partner with law enforcement in a positive, constructive, helpful way for all sides. You know, there's been a lot of talk when talking about police reform about removing maybe some of the sort of more social service roles um, from police work. You know, I've been sort of reflecting on children's advocacy centers in our experience. And it's interesting that 30 years ago when we started, We've always had the same multidisciplinary team. Law enforcement and prosecutors have been key parts of that team right from the beginning and are now to this day. But what police and prosecutors have focused on over that time and kind of how those teams have come together and formed has differed. Just as you're talking about prosecutors' offices over time have sort of transformed themselves So have we. And it seems to me that one of the shifts that has happened over time has been that we've learned more about collaboration, you Mm -hmm. know, and letting people kind of operate on their strengths. Do you see something there that can speak to these discussions about what law enforcement and partnering with the community can really look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the multidisciplinary model is such a great model that could be replicated in other areas. A big part of it, you talked about sort of individuals' lanes or certain uh, stakeholders' lanes and the shift that the reinvention, so to speak, of sort of these roles. And one thing that I have really talked a lot about is sort of breaking down those silos that in many ways we have Um, sometimes by statute, other times informally have set up silos in a way that is really detrimental to the end goal of serving victims of crime. And I think the MDT model with CACs is so important because you do have so many different players at the table and the collaboration that you speak of and the sharing of information and, um, sort of leveraging experiences, but also processes and technology and other information that really can help. We provided a training just for, as an example, on a particular issue. And it was amazing to me that I had two attendees from a same large office and they were technically in two different sort of sections of the office, 
but they were at this training and they didn't realize what the other was doing and realized mm. that they could be collaborating and breaking down those silos. And that was within one office. And so I think there is a broader, uh, it's easy to get sort of in your own lane and head down and get what you need to get done. But there may be missed opportunities to collaborate that ultimately it may save you resources. It may save you time. It may get justice at a faster rate for that victim, which particularly in child sex abuse cases, you know, we want to minimize as much as humanly possible the trauma experienced by individuals, whether a child or an adult. But um, we also know that adverse childhood experiences show up later in life with other problems. And so the earlier we can reach someone and the better job we can do to make them feel as safe and protected as possible, which is so great with a a CAC and sort of the co-location and collaboration of services. I just think that's so vital and a model that really can be a roadmap for other collaboration down the road that breaks down silos and also is just more efficient. We've been talking for a while here, and I'm just wondering, is there a question that I haven't asked you that you think, gosh, it's really important for me to talk about this? Uh, um, Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up the criminal justice reform writ large, because one thing, and I think this is pertinent to today's discussion, is, you know, we've talked about the shifting mentality, the shifting landscape in the criminal justice space, and that's so important, whether it be from uh, recognizing that second chances are very important, restoring Pell Grants for incarcerated individuals, whether it's talking about shifts in technology, increased diversion, that's all great. And we're very supportive of that and prosecutors around the country are. But when we talk about victims, one thing we have tried to really bring up while we at the same time have advocated for various reforms and improvements in the criminal justice system is to not forget the voices of victims of crime. And I do think that sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the broader sort of national discussion and rhetoric around reform. And let's have that conversation. And in so many ways, it's made for a better criminal justice system, but we cannot lose sight of the powerful voice that a victim of crime brings to the table or that we may not be including at the table as part of the discussion, because we may be letting individuals out earlier than previously uh, planned. Okay, but are we notifying the victim of a crime that that individual is being released early? Are we making sure that they're not re-traumatized and have the appropriate services? Reform is a good thing and improvements are always good, but we can't forget that there's a victim at the other end and we have to make sure that they are taken care of or else we're doing them a disservice as well. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do on behalf of victims and that your prosecutor members do. And we really couldn't do our work without our partnership with you. So we're deeply grateful. Thank you, Nelson. Yes. And we uh, have loved our partnership with not only you and the National Children's Alliance, but our members with CACs around the country and to that partnership and collaboration that you talked about. It's so vitally important, and we're just glad to be a part of the equation. Thanks for listening to this episode, which is part one of a three-part series, Criminal Justice Crystal Ball, about the future of the criminal justice system. In our next episode, we'll speak with Brad Russ, 
about the role of law enforcement in that system transformation and about the key role of collaboration between law enforcement and the community in making change possible. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of Children's Advocacy Centers, go to our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.